face to face is our message. Jeremiah 32 verse 31 is where we start. And we're just picking up kind of from the theme of where we were at last week in Jeremiah being prompted by God to buy a piece of land uh, from his cousin. And so I'll, I'll pick up some of those, those themes uh, in the course of this message. But verse 31 is where we're at. And again, this is a snapshot into what God is speaking to Jeremiah. And he has been uh, imprisoned in the, the royal palace. There was just this, this space. And uh, he's just shut up there. And in this place, God speaks to him uh, a couple of times. And he speaks to him again. And in verse 31, it says this. Indeed, speaking to Jeremiah, this city has been to me a provocation of my anger and my wrath from the day that they built it, even to this day that it should be removed from before my face. This theme of God's face is going to come out. Because all of the evil of the sons of Israel and of the sons of Judah, which they have done to provoke me to anger, they, their kings, their leaders, their priests, their prophets, the men of Judah, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, that doesn't leave out many people, right? And they have turned their back to me and not their face. Though I taught them, teaching again and again, they would not listen and receive instruction. But they put their detestable things in the house, which is called by my name, to defile it. And they built the high places of Baal that are in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire of Malek, which I had not commanded them, nor had it entered my mind that they should do this abomination. Basically, it was child sacrifice that they were doing. They were just burning their children to gods, and they felt that this would bring some sort of uh, solace and favor and in, in, in this was just detestable in the eyes of God of what His children were doing. Verse 36. Now therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel, concerning the city of which you say it is given into the, land, uh, the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them out of all the lands to which I have driven them in my anger and in my wrath and in great indignation, and I will bring them back to this place and make them dwell in safety. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God, and I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. And I will make them an everlasting covenant uh, uh, with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me, and I will rejoice over them to do them good, and I will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I brought all this great disaster on this people, so I am going to bring on them all the good that I am promising them, and fields shall be bought in this land of which you say it is a desolation without man or beast. It is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Men shall buy fields for money, sign and seal deeds, and call in witnesses in the land of Benjamin, in the environs of Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the lowland, and in the cities of the Negev. I, for I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. Amen. 
Last week, we talked about that fool's investment. Jeremiah received a word from God while he was imprisoned in the palace that his cousin would come and do the unthinkable, sell him land during wartime, and that was a fool's investment. Who buys land when there's no security in the future? No one does that, right? When there's a down economy or when you just don't know what the future is, who's going to be uh, the head honcho, if there's going to be any type of protection, will I know what's going to happen to this real estate in the years ahead? No one buys such important pieces of property at such time. And Jeremiah is approached by his cousin in prison, albeit, and it was a very insensitive prison visit. His cousin comes and says, hey, cuz, can you do what no other family will do right now? Would you buy this piece of land for me? We need some money. And Jeremiah does the unthinkable in this time, and he forks over his good, hard-earned money for land that didn't amount to a hill of beans in that moment. But he does this because God instructs him to do it because he sees on the tail end of this that God will restore the fortunes of this land. That if I will buy land now, it will be a sign and a testimony to people that there is a future here, right? If you are in real estate, right, and you want to sell a piece of land, the first thing that they do is they pull comps, comparables. Are other people paying this amount of money for this house, for this size, in this city, in this neighborhood? What are other people willing to pay for this? This is what the first thing that a real estate broker agent will do when they're trying to approach a buyer. When they're trying to negotiate selling prices with the seller. What are the comps? Right? What are the comps? If you love HGTV, it comes out all the time in all of those flip shows. What are the comps? Jeremiah was providing one of the comps. He was saying to all of the other people in that era, in that moment, saying, this land is worth something. You can pay something for it. There is a comparable now for price for land, and I am willing to be that voice. That buyer, that's what he was doing. He was giving a sign and a witness to everybody in the land. This land has a future and is worth something. That's what he was saying. right? And this dialogue with God is continuing to go on. And he's telling Jeremiah, you know, this city, all of its people, from the king all the way down to all of its inhabitants, I can't understand what's going on. It breaks my heart, he's telling Jeremiah, right? That this temple that I wanted to turn my face towards, this city, this people, and that I wanted to draw them close, I've come again and again. I've sent prophet after prophet. I have tried to teach them, but they would not listen or receive instruction, and they did not turn their face. What they did was they turned their backs. Now, when I first read that phrase, uh, turn their back, I thought of a couple of instances. The first was actually, strangely enough, a movie. Do y'all remember that movie, The Last Samurai with Tom Cruise? You guys remember that, right? I mean, that's prototypical Hollywood, right? You got the, the hero white guy <laughs> saving all the others, right? And, uh, you know, I, I haven't watched Crazy Rich Asians, but uh, is it any good for those of you that watched it? Okay. Right? 
when you have the, the hero or the heroine as, you know, but sidetrack. Why did I get there, right? <laughs> Last samurai, Tom Cruise, you know, he was instructed when he was going to go into uh, the presence of the emperor by an individual, make sure you don't turn your back, right? And so how they, they walked in with their face down and they walked out like this. Y'all remember that scene, right? And th that was strangely one of the first things that I thought about when I read that phrase, they turned their back. And there was, there was something about turning your back to a person that is an authority, right? And it, it, there's a history of that in different nations. It shows itself in different forms, right? But this idea of turning your back to someone who has an authority over you. Now that word authority in our day and age has garnered some sort of negativity, right? We, we, we look at times like not so highly uh, with that word authority. We think of, of something that is overbearing, domineering, autocratic, right? But that word authority is a good thing. That we need authority, lines, boundaries in our lives. We need direction. We need to be able to look up and have accountability with somebody that is above us. Right? And so when there is authority over our lives, to turn your back to that authority, there is a great sense of disrespect. Right? And the second thing I thought of, maybe you married folks will understand this, is when you're um, like, you know, having a disagreement and you're, you know, you're just like, I don't know if you sleep in separate beds or if you're relegated to the couch or whatnot, but more often than not, you can sleep in the same bed but be completely like worlds apart from the person that is but three feet next to you if you simply roll over <laughs> and face the outside of the bed, right? And you turn your back to your spouse, right? And in this moment, you feel so distant. You feel as though, like, wow, it's like there is like this chasm as big as the Grand Canyon between us, and there is an emotional separation simply by one move. Turning your back. Turning your back. Right? And so God brings this imagery that I want to see your face. That when I, when I come to you, when you come to me, I want to be face to face. I want to look at you. I want to see your emotion. I want you to know that you are safe in my presence. I don't want your back, he's saying. I don't want the disconnect. I don't want you to feel ashamed. If there is something in between you and another individual, it's so much easier to turn your back and to not give facial recognition. Because when you turn your face to somebody, you are literally opening up your soul to an individual. People say that when they look into a person's eyes, they can see deep down in. It's a window to an inner space, right? And so when you turn your face to somebody, it is more than just a posture. It is an invitation. It is saying, I want relationship. I want to get closer to the people you want distance from. You don't look intently into their face. You turn away. When there's someone that you have a difficult time with, it is hard to look into that individual's eyes. And so there is something very close about being face to face, about looking at somebody, being allowed to be looked at. 
And this is what God wants with His people. He's dying for this. The construction of the temple and all of its elaborate, ornate, detailed ways was not just to build a fantastic, superb structure. It was so that God's people had a space where they would meet with Him, where they would worship Him, where they would see His face, where they would interact. And as God was looking at His people, they were doing the unthinkable, the things that God would say in this anamorphism, it never even entered my mind, right? Like, I never even thought about that. Like, like, where did that come from that you would bring your children to the fire, right? And because of all of what was happening, God's saying, I'm going to bring disaster. I'm going to send you to Babylon. We've talked about this, of how this is happening, right? And how long it would last. But I hope you got this in our passage. In this passage in particular, the, the amount of words or verses given to destruction are very short. The heart of this passage was about bringing His people back about the intention of the exile, about why he was doing this and how he wanted to gather them, how he wanted to to bring them close, to bring them to a place of safety. He wanted to be their God, for them to be his people. He wanted to give them one heart, one way. He wanted to make an everlasting covenant so they wouldn't turn. He wanted to bring a healthy fear into their hearts so that they would be his people. He wanted to rejoice over them. And this is the bulk of our passage. And he's giving them a future here and he's telling them that I will bring destruction and disaster on this city, this nation, this people. But I want you to know that it is for a greater purpose because I want to look at their face again. I'm not satisfied with this back turned to me. And I want something a lot deeper. I want something more. And hopefully what you get from here is the first thing that I'll say is this. God initiates, right? God initiates. In verses 37 to 41, I I literally just circled it in my Bible, right? In those few verses, 10 times God says, I will. Verse 37, I will gather them out of the lands to which I've driven them. You know, Uh, You know, I'm going to do this. I have driven them. I will bring them back. I will be their God. I will give them one heart. I will make an everlasting covenant. I will will not turn from them. I, I will put the fear of me. I will rejoice over them. I will faithfully plant them. It just goes on and on. And this is God's initiation there. That he's doing this. That Babylon was his doing. The the persecution, the hardship was his hand. Bringing them back was his hand. The motivation for all of this, God was doing. Right? That he was at the epicenter of all of the action. God was doing this. And I think it's important to note here that we should not blame Satan for all the hardships in our lives. I think it's easy to do that, isn't it? Like you, you experience loss, hardship, of some sort, suffering. And it's so easy to blame Satan for that, you know? And 
I, I, of course, I, I don't want to, you know, say that he's not the reason for suffering and hardships in our lives. But what you'll see in Scripture is that hardship is a tool of God. You look to the life of Job in the Bible, right? All of his friends, all of his contemporaries, his family members misunderstood all of the hardships and sufferings he was going through, you know? But you read the undercurrent of all of the dialogue in the book of Job, God's the one saying, say, okay, you, you want to do that? You do that. He was the one giving permission, right? And so we ought not blame Satan for all hardships, and we ought not expect escape from all hardships. Somehow as a Christian, if we believe that we uh, should not have any suffering in our lives and that we should just kind of pray our way out of all of that, and if God were good to us, that He wouldn't uh, allow us to be in those moments, something is faulty with our theology, with our understanding of faith in God. But what we should do is we should know that God works for our good. Big picture, right? And that God thinks and acts in big picture ways. Here what you find is he, th he thinks generationally, right? And, you know, the good that he wanted to do to them, as it says in verse 39, that um, it's this Babylonian exile, it's for their own good and for the good of their children after them, right? And so the good that God wanted to do wasn't just specific to one generation. God thinks generationally. That's big picture, right? That's big picture, and we've talked about this, right? And Jeremiah's words to that contemporary generation of 70 years was not a pleasing one. You know, that's saying my grandchildren are going back, not me, right? But God thinks that way. He thinks generationally. And it would do us so much good just to always repeat into our own hearts and lives, life's bigger than me, you know? Life tends to go awry when we think it, we're the epicenter, like we're the focal point. But when we get it down in our gut that life is so much bigger than me, it brings so much peace and calm to the spaces that were just chaotic. The second thing that I'll say is this, that in our faith with God, it should be personal, not casual. Because what it became was in a sense casual. That God wants this personal faith. He wants closeness and intimacy, but not to the space where faith and relationship with Him becomes casual, nonchalant. Too easygoing. In a sense, I was thinking about this as a parent. This is exactly the relationship that I want to have with my kids. I want to have a personal relationship with them, not a casual one. Right? I mean, there's a sense where I want to be their best friend, like I want to be a friend, but I'm not their friend, I'm their dad. There's a difference, right? That the way that they act, speak, it should be personal, not casual, right? There's a huge difference between that, right? Now, one is just like, you know, like you, the personal aspect is you feel trust, safety, closeness, intimacy that you can share anything, that you're not ashamed. It's personal. Like I can share the deeper spaces of my life with you because I know you and I know you know me. That There's a love here. There's a closeness. That's personal. This is important. What is like just casual is like disrespectful, right? Just like, hey, yeah, I remember 
I mean, it was, it was kind of weird. We were just, uh, what were we doing? And we were just maybe just lying on the couch somewhere. And the kids just kind of nonchalantly put their, their feet all over my face and head, right? <laughs> I mean, there was something kind of cute about that, right? But I, I said, you don't put your feet on, on people's heads, right? And, you, you, and I didn't want to create distance, but I wanted to, to let them know that this is not something that you do to people, let alone your dad, right? And when they talk to me, I want them to be close and personal, but not disrespectful and too casual. There's a huge difference, right? And for God, when He was looking at His people, He was like, I want closeness, I want intimacy, I want to see your face. But I, I don't want you to just like kick up your feet and just feel like this doesn't matter. I can come in when I please and I can leave when I please. That, ah, well, me and God, yeah, we're, 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 we're like that. And that's all that it is. It's too casual. It doesn't hold weight. And what God wants is closeness, but not disrespect. And I, I think that's meaningful for our generation of Christianity right now that's happening. Because there's a huge push on, of course, you know, that, that casual side and the personal nature of church and faith with God. And I get that, you know. I mean, I, don't, I used to wear a suit every Sunday, a suit and tie. I don't know if you remember, for those of you that know, you know, that, that we go way back. I used to wear a suit and tie every Sunday. And I mean, nowadays, maybe it's the heat. I just can't stand it, right? I have a hard time wearing long sleeves as is, right? If you see me midweek, I'm usually, especially in the summer, in shorts and a t-shirt every day. It's just, I get hot, right? But more than that, I, I, I think, you know, it's just, uh, nowadays work in the business world as well. Everything's going a little bit more casual, especially in tech spaces, of course, right? But I, I mean, I, I get that, that, that casualness of, of kind of expression of how we like our environment and faith. And I, and I get that. And when we come to God, we call Him Abba. We call Him a dad, a father that is close and personal with us. And we like that personal relationship with Jesus. And that is, of course, something that is stress. And I like that. But there can be an effect that is not healthy and maybe not meant to be as a result of that. And in a sense, you lose the fear of God. Because he's become your friend. You know, I'm the friend of God, right? And with that comes, at times, I think, in a way that can be unhealthy, you lose the healthy fear of God. Where it becomes too casual. How I deal with God. How I approach God. How I think about my faith and my life. That I will be held accountable before God at life's end. I will stand before a huge seat of judgment and my life will be held in account. I will bring back all that was. And God will say, what did you do? That I was the one that gave you life. Did you live life as if it meant something? Right? And when we approach that in a different light, when we know that God is in a place greater than an emperor of a nation, a head of state, but He is the King of the universe, the maker of my life, the institution, uh, the, 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 the one that has is, that is brought about and instituted all of human history, that my life is before Him. Yeah, I want a personal relationship and He wants a personal relationship with me. 
but casual. Like, I, I think this point, more so than in previous generations, needs to be spoken. Like, when we see our faith, is it casual? Ah, I, uh, like, I know he's... God wants it personal, but He wants it to mean something. And that's why Babylon came about. These guys, they weren't taking the temple serious. They weren't taking their instructions serious. They weren't taking their relationship with God serious. And so it's like, you know what? I, I need to crack this hardness. And the method by which I will do that is Babylon. I'm going to break them there. But the intention of my breaking is not to leave them in a million pieces, shattered and broken. But my intent is to gather them back. I want to put these pieces together the right way. And just fixing on the fly is not going to cut it right now. I need to dismantle. And then I'm going to put it back together. And when I do that, I want to make sure that they know that they're my people, I'm their God. I want to give them one heart and one way. And I want to put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. Because I want to rejoice over them. I want to do them good. I want to plant them in this land that I've always promised to give them. And the phrase at the end of verse 41 to me is phenomenal. He says, I will faithfully plant them in this land. And it says this, with all my heart and with all my soul. I mean, isn't that a phrase we normally associate with how we, are, we ought to love God? Right? Love God with everything, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And here, you see God saying, when I'm doing this, like I see my people, I'm going to send them here, I'm going to bring them back, and I'm going to plant them here. This is my intent. They say, I'm pouring all of myself into this. I'm giving my complete attention to this. This is what he's saying. I'm doing this with all my heart and with all my soul. And that just tells me something. God's heart was breaking over His people. I mean, He was looking at that. I mean, if you're a parent, you understand. You know what it means to have your heart broken over your children. When you see them go through pain. When you see a path that you can see where this is headed. They don't. And you want to cut them off, right? You want to to get in the, in the way and say, not this way, son. This is not the right way to react. This is not the right way to think. And you want to give them worth. Don't get so defeated in yourself. Don't be so caught up in what, what, what the world or your friends have or what they're doing and just know that it's so much better than that. And at a young age, still, I'm, I'm trying to, to instill things. 
And there are moments when they experience hurt and hardship and your heart breaks over that. I don't know how many times I've had to take Jacob to the ER in his young seven-year, seven-and-a-half-year-old life. And every time I take him there, man, it's like, ah. When they're sedated and going under and you have to sign a waiver that they might not wake up from this, like, ah. When you see blood come out of them, when you see things happen to them and they cry and they feel like life is over, you want to embrace them and hold them ever so closely. And with all of your heart, you're intent about bringing health and wholeness to this child of yours. How much more so the perfect love of God the Father. When He looks at us as children going wayward, burning their children, doing things that didn't even enter His mind, how much more is God not just in just anger and saying, I want to correct them, but just wanting like they're just wandered far. And I want to bring them back. This is what God was doing. And the close of our passage, He Really, he says to Jeremiah again, you know, remember that land that you bought bought from your cousin? This is the purpose. You're providing the comps. There will be a day where land is bought here again. People will sign and seal deeds. They will call witnesses. And from the hill country to the flatlands, this land is worth something. I want you to know, though Babylon will and is overrunning this space, you will be displaced. This will be detestable in the sight of all people. But I want you to know it's worth something. It's promised land. So when you bought that space, that piece, it was a sign. It was a witness. And so I'm going to close. You guys... Come back. I just, maybe that one song, that first song that, that we sang today. Uh, but I'll end with this. That God doesn't give up. Right? He doesn't give up. Time and time again, he says, I've taught them. I, I've, I've sent this. And Babylon was not God giving up. I give up. I leave you. I leave you. That was God not giving up, of wanting to come closer. So I share that with you today. God doesn't give up on you. On you. Right? That exile in Babylon was God's way of bringing His people closer, not pushing them farther away. And lastly, turn your face. Both images of Tom Cruise in the presence of the emperor, showing respect and not turning his back and understanding the highness of God. That faith and relationship with him should not be casual, just to do as we please, walk in and walk out however we want. But there needs to be a healthy fear of him that we need to know that what we say and what we do before God matters. How we conduct ourselves. That God sees in a good way. Right? But also to turn our face and not our backs in that intimacy aspect. 
of not being the spouse that turns on the bed because I just don't want to talk right now and I just can't have any of this. And you know what, just whatever. But just to roll the shoulder and to turn inward. To tap on the shoulder and say, can we talk? And in this space right here, regaining and rediscovering intimacy to come back to a relationship that is not lost. God's saying, I don't give up on you. Don't give up on this. I want closeness and I want a personal faith. Just roll over. Just turn your face to me. And the great thing about it is this, that we were like this and we were expecting God to look the other way, but we rolled over and we're looking at him face to face. He was looking at us the whole time. Right? He was just waiting right there. He's the one tapping us on the shoulder, saying, hey, roll over for a second. Right? Turn your face, not your back. Amen. Amen.